Today we're going to do things a little different. Um, I'm going to I'm going to press you today. I'm going to challenge you uh, in, a, in a way that might feel uncomfortable, but hopefully it's going to be really awesome. Uh, I'm not just experimenting. I really am uh, done this prayerfully and intentionally, but we're going to mix up things a little bit and move our prayer time, which we would normally have right now, to the end of our service, and you'll see why we're going to do that in a minute. So I'm going to ask you at this time if you want to turn right to our passage that we're going to be looking at. It's from 2 Samuel. We flipped uh, into the second Samuel now. Finished the first, into the second. It's on page 214 if you're using this Brown Pew Bible. And when you found that, would you stand together with me and I'll read this passage for us. Second Samuel chapter 1 beginning at verse 1, says this. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites. Just a quick note, that's separating the events. It's showing that they're not related. Uh, remember, Saul was off fighting the Philistines. David had been chasing after the Amalekites that burned his city and took everyone captive. He's returned now to Ziklag from chasing after them. And he stayed at Ziklag for two days. Verse 2, on the third day... A man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn, dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from, David asked him. And he answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened, David asked, tell me. He said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. And David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around and he saw me, he called out to me and said, and I said, what can I do? And he asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. And he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and I've brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of an alien, that is, a resident alien in Israel. I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite, he answered. And David asked him, well, why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then he called one of his men and said, go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. And David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. And he ordered that the men of Judah be taught the lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jasher. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest their daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa. May you have neither dew nor rain nor fields that yield offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. 
the sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O oh, daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more lovely, more wonderful than, the, than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us and just ask God's blessing on this time in his word. Spirit of God, we ask you once again just to be very tangibly present with us right now as we come to your word to, to learn from it, to understand. We need your spirit to open up our minds to understand what you've written here. We believe you inspired men centuries ago to write these words for our good, for our benefits, for our learning and understanding of what you're like and what you've done. Help us to understand what you have for us here today. You tell us that whenever you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Splashy. You were the best fish we have ever known. We'll miss you. That's about all I had. That's about all I could come up with that day as I stood around that little tin box where we had buried my daughter's pet fish. It, it wasn't a lot. It was short, but it was no less sincere. I mostly meant it. Perhaps just slightly more poetic, more profound, is the words that Shakespeare gave to Mark Anthony to speak over the just slain body of Julius Caesar when he said, you remember, Oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of flesh. But I am meek and gentle with these butchers. Thou art the ruins of the noblest man that ever lived in the tide of times. Woe to the hand that shed this costly blood. Over thy wounds now do I prophesy, which like dumb mouths do ope their ruby lips to beg the voice and utterance of my tongue. A little better. A little bit more poetic and nice. Whatever the difficulties, whatever the relational strain that took place, whatever the begrudging fishbowl cleaning because that was supposed to be the girl's job that may have appeared to happen, what these words reveal is, is the, tr the true heart, the true heart behind the one speaking them towards their departed friend. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of uh, speaking at a funeral before. Maybe you've been invited to give the eulogy Maybe it's just something that you shared during the reception that you kind of had prepared to share about that person you knew or loved. But if you have, you'll know that one of the gifts and the challenges of that experience is that it requires you to enter into your grief, enter into that place of sadness, and then well, just kind of stay there. Like You have to kind of sit there for a while as you process through the life of this person that you're going to talk about and all that they've meant to you. Regardless of what that relationship included, the thoughtful, intentional time spent there processing is almost always beneficial. 
And as we continue this morning in this teaching series, After God's Own Heart, looking at the life of David, as found in the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Samuel, what we see in our passage today is David entering into just such an intentional, thoughtful time of grief upon hearing of the death of Saul and Jonathan, revealing David's true heart, I think here, not just towards his best friend Jonathan, that would have been unsurprising to anyone, but also to Saul, this, this man who's been chasing him and his men across the desert, he's, he's included. So it's really teaching us something about the true heart of David, and, and I believe the result of that intentional time spent there, this lament of the bow, as he calls it, that David writes and then orders the men of Judah to learn along with him, I think it teaches us a great deal about the absolute necessity of lament in the life of the man or woman who seeks to be after God's own heart. It's the necessity of lament. And I think another thing it also teaches us is it, is it provides us here with kind of like a contrasting story where you see two different sides. On the one hand, you see the pretense of grief, which is really just intended for someone to accomplish their selfish motives, contrasted with grief rightly observed. And that's why I think this message is going to be so important for us. I'm praying by God's grace that it's going to be transformational to your thinking, to the way you understand this by God's grace, because it's been that way for me this week as well as I wrote this. It's the Spirit enabled me to write this message, and I'm just praying it would be just the same for you. Because for most of us here today, if you grew up in a predominantly Western culture or, or you've just been deeply influenced by Western culture, if that's where you're coming from, most of us, we don't even have a category for something like lament being a part of our worship. We're just like, what? And, and grief, that's not something that we like to intentionally enter into and sit there. No, no, no. Grief is something that we think of that we should just be endured privately, personally, and then just to get through as quickly as possible. Let's just get on with this. That, that's our Western response to grief very often. And yet think about this. If Jesus himself, the most fully human person who ever lived, or even someone like David, who were told, a man after God's own heart, if they lived like this, if they saw these things as essential in their lives, why would we not seek to incorporate these same things in our own lives in order to know the fullness of all that God created us to be? And so believing that that's a direction that the Spirit of God would have all of us walk, and following the pattern of this case study of contrasting attitudes towards grief, I want to look at two things together with you from this story in our passage. I want to show you the pretense of grief, and then a grief observed. The pretense of grief and a grief observed. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again with me? 2 Samuel chapter 1. Follow along with me now as we learn about developing really a more fully human response to grief from the life of this man after God's own heart. Okay, so let's talk first of all about the pretense of grief. The pretense of grief. Now, there's no question that when you just read through this first part of the passage, uh, like at face value anyway, it's not immediately apparent that there's any pretense of grief going on in this Amalekite messenger. I mean, he's just reporting what happened on the battlefield. He's saying, hey, this, this is what I saw there, and then he's providing credible, credible evidence of the story by bringing this crown and armband to David. And so honestly, if you're like me, David's response seems pretty brutal. It seems pretty confusing that, you know, this guy is basically 
He's rescued the king from, from being tortured mercilessly by the Philistines before he died anyway. And then David's response is to have him killed? It just seems like, well, I don't understand. Why? That doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem just. Well, there's a few key elements to consider, which uh, I think are going to help us understand better what's going on here. The first, probably most notable key, is that while everything that we read from this Amalekite messenger's report from our passage, although it just seems straightforward, legit, normal, uh, a fairly significant problem arises when you read the last chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 31, that has uh, the narrator there gives us a very different account of Saul's death, actually, how, how it actually happened. Namely, that when the battle was almost lost and Saul is mortally wounded by an arrow, he asks his armor bearer to finish him off before the Philistines overtake them. Not some wandering Amalekite soldier. His armor bearer, he asks him to do it. His armor bearer will not. He won't do it. And so Saul ends up falling on his sword, taking his own life. So you see the problem here? There's, there's quite a discrepancy between the stories here. And yet, even having said that, it's important to note that at this point anyways, this is only a problem for us who, who know about 1 Samuel 31. This is not a problem for David and his men because this is all they know. All they know is what the Amalekites told him. And so as far as they're concerned, this is what happened. I mean, they can't go check the cameras and be like, oh, you weren't there. They just, this is what they have. Which leads to the second important key in understanding why David would respond this way. As stated by pastor and author Eugene Peterson in his commentary, he writes this, There is no hint in the storytelling that David suspects the Amalekite is lying. The story as told, as far as we can tell, convinces David. So far, so good. Now, I love this. What the Amalekite has not counted on is that David is a theologian. I love that. And because David is a theologian, that instantly creates two life-threatening problems for this Amalekite as he seeks to kind of twist and spin recent history to his own favor. Uh, the first problem being, we, we already discussed this, we spent an entire message looking at David's understanding of what that, that title meant, the Lord's anointed for Saul as the king. It's a very important term for him. For, for David, he understood Saul to be God's sovereign anointed choice to be king presently. Whatever you thought about how he was ruling, he is God's sovereign choice. And so for David, this was an anointing that he so respected, so revered, that although Saul has been hunting him all across the desert without cause, and David himself has also been anointed now to be Israel's next king at least two times. We looked at one in chapter 24. There's also one in 26 where David has a clear path to take Saul's life. Nobody there. He's got to he can just take him right now, clear shortcut to the throne, and he won't do it. He will not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed, nor will he allow his men to do it. And so, this is precisely why you see in verse 13 then of our passage, after they've had this day of mourning and weeping, David comes to this Amalekite messenger and he asks him, he kind of follows up and he says, right, where are you from again? Because you see, the problem for David isn't ultimately that this man is an Amalekite. It's the fact that he's the son of a resident alien in Israel, which means he should have known better. He would have known all Israelite laws and customs related to what the Lord's anointed meant. And so that's why David can then ask this guy without prejudice, without 
presumption, verse 14. Well, then why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? You're saying you're a resident alien in Israel and you didn't know this? How were you not afraid to do this? And so now, actually, it doesn't even matter anymore if the Amalekites' words are true or not. As David says in verse 16, your own mouth has testified against you because the guy's just admitted to treason, a capital offense, striking down Israel's anointed king with full knowledge of what he was doing. So that's the first problem for this Amalekite messenger, that David being a theologian. The second problem is that as a theologian, David understands his relationship to Saul covenantally, which is just to say that for David, he sees Saul to be a fellow Israelite, a fellow member of God's covenant people Israel, albeit one that he's in conflict with. He even refers to Saul in different places as his father, and Saul calls David his son. There's this very clear understanding of Israelite identity. And the reason that creates a problem for the Amalekite is because he's clearly misunderstood David's heart towards Saul. He doesn't understand how David views Saul. He looks at David and sees a man of war who's just chomping at the bit to get Saul out of the way so that he can be the next king. That's what he thinks. And so, as every commentator I read who, who commented on this part of the passage agreed, what clearly happened is that this Amalekite soldier, he's on the battlefield, he just happened to come across Saul's body before the Philistines did. And, and seeing what he believed to be an opportunity to gain political favor with the future king of Israel, he concocted this plausible yet unverifiable story, always the best way to go, plausible yet unverifiable story about doing away with David's arch enemy. He's like, I took care of your, your problem for you, David. And then here presents the, the evidence of the fact that he's truly done what he said. But can you even imagine what's going on in this guy's mind when he comes to David with this heroic story, expecting praise, expecting promotion, dressed in, in the costume of grief, only to find that instead of celebration, David's men display the content of true grief, tearing their robes, Morning and fasting until evening at the news of Saul's death. Uh-oh. <laughs> that, that's not the kind of response that he was hoping for. Now in, both, in both instances, it's clear that this man had very clearly misjudged David. He didn't understand what kind of person he was. But all I want to do as it relates to our attitude towards grief today is just, just to examine this Amalekite's pretense of grief for a moment. I just want to look at it. You see it described there in verse 2 as he comes to David with, with clothes torn and dust on his head. Clothes all ripped and torn, dust covering his head. We see somebody like this today. We think maybe he just came from an epic beach volleyball game down at Spanish Banks. But in, in Israelite culture, in Israelite understanding to, to tear your clothes like this, to take dust and just pour it over your head. This was outward signs that everyone understood of grief, mourning. This is how you show it externally what was happening inside. And yet as you read on, you see that this man is he's anything but grieving, actually. At best, he's using what grief he might have in order to, to just use it as an instrument of manipulation. And at worst, he feels no grief at all, actually. And he's simply just wearing the costume of grief as he steps, figuratively speaking, on the Lord's anointed king in order to try and reach a, a higher position under the new king. It's pretty sad, actually. And yet, although it's good and, and right to condemn this 
this man's deplorable opportunism. I think at the same time, what we need to do is also answer the question in response to that, but why? Like, why would he, why would he do that? Why would this Amalekite respond to an event that's clearly worthy of true grief with nothing more than the pretense of it? Why, what's going on there? Or maybe a more pressing question to ask would be, why do we still respond like this in a thousand other disordered ways to grief today? Why do we do that? I think there's all kinds of uh, different reasons of what we could come up with and why we do that. But I think, one of, for me, one of the most helpful, one of the most compelling reasons for that is that somewhere along the way, we simply lost our understanding of what grief is for. We don't know what grief is for anymore. And of course, whenever you lose sight of what something is for, you inevitably discard it or use it wrongly. If you need a more concrete example of that, you don't need to look any farther than our culture's current attitudes towards sex. When you lose sight of what something is for, you either discard it or use it very wrongly. And so sadly, what we see in our passage here about this Amalekite taking something like grief and then just using it as a tool of manipulation. That's just one example of many of the ways that you see grief being used wrongly or discarded today. That's just one example. So for instance, most of you would here would probably agree today. We don't like looking at grief. Grief is uncomfortable to witness when we see somebody truly grieving deeply. We, it's uncomfortable for us to look at, mostly because I think it just challenges our kind of filtered Instagram world that we like to see on our screens. This is a little bit too real for us. We're just kind of like, oh, so maybe we see it on the news. We can watch it for a bit, but then we're just like, I got to change the channel. It's too much. Or another way we do this is if it's somebody in your life, somebody in your uh, place in front of you, when we witness grief from them, sometimes without even knowing it, we end up uh, uh, applying like a, a relational or a social pressure on them to either just, would you hide that away, please? Or would you just get over that quickly? I need you to just move on from that. Oh, you're still suffering with that? Oh. Like, like we apply this pressure on people who are grieving to just, don't, don't put that in front of me. But then on the other hand, of course, grief is also incredibly uncomfortable to experience, isn't it? When you're the one grieving. But of course, when we're grieving, because we know how uncomfortable grief is to witness, in order to avoid that social stigma or the feeling of just being exposed and so vulnerable to people, we'll just shove down our grief. We'll push it away, we'll numb it, we'll ignore it, we'll do whatever we can just to appear more stable and kind of put together in front of people so we don't make them uncomfortable. And then in private, we'll just work as, as hard as we can just to quickly put that away, just get rid of grief as quickly as possible. Just need to move on from it, even if you've done anything but move on from it. These are just a few examples, just a few examples of the way that we still do this today. But the point is, wherever, wherever you see these misuses of grief in yourself, in others, our goal should never be to say, well, what we need to do is just become more, more comfortable with discomfort. No, 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 that's not, that's not what the point is. Our goal should be to understand and rediscover the purpose behind discomfort, that discomfort we feel in grief, which is just to say, our goal should be to regain our understanding of what grief is for. That should be our response when we see these misuses of grief. 
Okay, so, so what is it for? What is grief for? And, and how does entering into grief thoughtfully, intentionally enable us to better experience all the fullness of who God created us to be? Well, that's the last thing I want to talk with you about now as we look at a grief observed. A grief observed. Now, those of you who are fans of C.S. Lewis, the guy that wrote all the Chronicles of Narnia series, you, you might recognize the, this point heading as the title of a book that Lewis wrote in 1961 following the death of his wife. A Grief Observed was the name of the, the book, and really what it was was a catalog of sorts following Lewis's journal entries as he progressively sought to understand and wrestle with his grief at the death of his wife as well as the theological implications of it. Interestingly, describing the writing of that book itself, Lewis called it a defense against total collapse. A safety valve, he called it. Later noting that what he came to recognize through the process of writing was that bereavement is a universal and integral part of our experience of love. I think that's true. And as you look at the remaining verses of our passage here, beginning at verse 17, what you see is very much the same thing. David thoughtfully, intentionally uh, releasing the safety valve on his heart as he reflects on the death of Saul and Jonathan, and the word that he uses to describe this release being lament. He writes this lament of the bow. Now, lament, that, that's a word we still use today, although the practice of it is usually a bit more informal than what you see here, so you're much more likely to hear lament when maybe you ask your child to clean their room on Saturday morning, uh, when you ask a Canucks fan about the 2011 Stanley Cup run, you're likely to hear something like Laments happen, but although the practice is more informal, the content of our lamenting is actually quite the same, largely the same, as you have these expressions of deep sorrow, followed by a questioning complaint. Why would this happen? How could this be? Why, why would you let this be like this? All these elements, and then followed by, you've got expressions of regret, followed by hopeful desires for the future. These things are all included in something like lament. And as you read through David's lament here, in verses 17 to 27, and actually in, in any of David's laments, in the Psalms, did you know that almost 70% of the book of Psalms are lament psalms? That's a, that's a lot. We tend to think of Psalms like, hey, praise the Lord. 70% of them are laments, are, God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? When you look at David's lament here, you see many of these same elements included in his lament here. But of course, the most striking thing that, that we note when we go through it is the inclusion of Saul. He doesn't solely lament over his best friend, Jonathan, which reveals to us, I think, once and for all, without any shadow of a doubt, that David's heart, it was truly blameless towards Saul. He wasn't just on his best behavior while Saul was alive. He truly loved him. He truly honored him. And of course, that was probably one of the things that made Saul's relentless pursuit of him to take his life feel all the more painful to endure. He, he loved this guy, and he understood him so wrongly. Laments, says author Rene James, they challenge us to, to locate our pain, the pain of others, the pain of the world, and then make it all the subject of our prayers. I like that. And given our present cultural attitudes towards grief, that, that is a, that's no small challenge, is it? <laughs> because for us, the call to lament, it's the call to enter into the very place that we're so 
desperate to avoid or just to get over as quickly as possible. Now a lament is inviting us to enter into that place and not just enter in, but stay there. Stay there and sit there long enough to observe it, to really investigate it and look at it. That, that word observe, I don't know if it stood out to you, but you notice that Lewis calls his book a grief observed, not, not a grief kind of looked at, a grief seen, a grief experienced, a grief observed. That word, of course, much more than just simply seeing, carries with it the expectation of intentionality, of, of investigation. I'm investigating this thing in order to learn, in order to gain greater knowledge about it, which is actually, if you read his book, that's, that's what he does. He, he grows in his understanding of what, what is grief for? Why has God allowed me to go through this? When I was uh, training for a career in the fire department, one of the things that we learned about was a process called venting. Venting. Now, maybe you know, maybe you didn't know, when a house is on fire, at least initially, there's very few places for the smoke to get out. And because of that, as the fire grows, the smoke just fills more and more of the house, making uh, escape almost impossible and also making extinguishing the fire almost impossible because you can't see where it actually originates from. And so what you're doing when you're venting is you're strategically opening doors and windows in order to kind of create this cross draft so the smoke can clear and you can finally see where the source of the fire is in order to get to it. My point is that lament is very much a venting for the human heart where the clouds of smoke and grief have filled it, allowing us to see what's true more clearly, as well as allowing us to locate that source of our pain, the source of our fear, the source of our sorrow. We can see it more clearly now when the smoke is clear, which means that lament is an invitation to no longer having just, just be that sad person. I'm just sad. I'm just depressed. I'm just angry. But to observe, to investigate, truly what, where those things are originating from, where's the source of them, so that by God's grace, with his help, with the help of others, we can actually begin to deal with what's causing those feelings. This is not, lament is not whining, okay? It's not just complaint for complaint's sake, sitting around talking about how, oh, what a moron this person is. Like, that, that kind of complaint is just, that's lifeless. It doesn't serve anybody. No, lament, as Renee James says, it's a, it's a collection of our griefs, a collection of the griefs of others, and then gathering those things through observation and, and making them the subject of our prayers. We offer those griefs that we've collected up to God in prayer, crying out, help. I don't understand this. This hurts. And as you see in verse 17 and 18 of our passage, look there. It's a collection of griefs that's to be lifted up to God both privately as well as corporately. It's not just something to be done on your own because you see David uh, commands that not, not only does he write this uh, lament for himself to read, but he commands that everyone else, all the people of Judah, are to learn this lament as well and sing it with him. Which is undoubtedly, I think, one of the things that led Eugene Peterson to write, lament is a social act as well as a personal act. Adding, lament is a gospel act. And yet, think about this. For all its benefits, for all of its benefits for life and godliness, lament is a spiritual discipline that's practiced almost nowhere today. Not in our families, not in our churches, not in our worship songs. You see it almost nowhere. Why? Why is that? 
Well, I think because we begun with a lost understanding of grief's purpose. That's where we started. We don't understand what grief is for, and so as a result, we simply abandon the practice of lament along with it. Why would we do that? Well, because as long as you remain unwilling to courageously observe your grief, unwilling to enter into that place of, of, of hurt and that it's, it's, it is scary, as long as we remain unwilling to do that, you know that you can't have access to the healing, venting power of lament. The two things go together, observing grief and being able to clear the smoke in order to vent out the suffering along with it. And because of that, very, very sadly, actually, some of you here today, I know, are walking around you, you are covered with the dust and ashes of grief. Your, your heart and mind are filled with the smoke of it. And yet nobody knows. We see you come in here, we, we've got no idea that that's happening. Why? Because you've been so well trained by our culture to just put it away. All because we've lost sight of the truth. Listen. The purpose of our grief is diagnostic. This is what grief does. This is its purpose. This is why it's so valuable in our lives. It's one of God's good gifts to us, almost like pain sensors. It reveals to us that something's wrong. Our grief reminds us there's something wrong, not just with this situation. There's something wrong in our world. There's something broken, and it stirs within us a longing for change, a longing for something different, a longing for a better world. It stirs within us a longing for Jesus. Our grief is ultimately that groaning of all creation that we read about in Romans 8, longing for the redemption of all things when Christ returns. That's what our griefs do when we allow them to actually touch us and feel them. They point us to that hopeful promise we have in Christ that one day when he returns, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will restore all that's been lost. And one of the most profound, incomprehensibly beautiful things about Christianity is that the very same Christ whose return one day will wipe these tears away, will bring a final end to our grief and our sorrow and our sadness. That same Christ also took on human flesh 2,000 years ago and experienced those same things firsthand himself. As the prophet Isaiah wrote, Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. As Hebrews 7 tells us, or sorry, Hebrews 5, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Jesus lamented referring at least both to Jesus' cries and prayers in Gethsemane as well as his cry of desolation on the cross, quoting one of David's own laments in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would he do that? Why would Jesus enter into our experience? Why would he observe 
our sufferings this way. He did it, as Hebrews 4 tells us, so that along with being a perfect high priest, offering us the promise of hope and restoration for all who are weary and laden under our griefs, he might also be a merciful priest who's able to sympathize with our weakness. He's felt that he's carried our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. You know, as Lewis rightly noted, bereavement and suffering and loss, they truly are a universal, integral part of our experience of love. They really are. The good news of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus experienced the pinnacle of bereavement so that through his suffering and loss, we might have hope in the midst of every grief that we still experience today. Amen. I'm going to ask those of you that are helping me serve communion if you'd come forward at this time. Here's what I want to do. I just finished telling us that something like lament is not, we don't experience this, we don't do this a lot in our worship. Uh, we don't even necessarily see it as a helpful part of it because we've lost sight of grief. And what I'm going to ask us to do this morning for our prayer time is to begin to explore this essential practice, this essential spiritual discipline of lament together. Now I know it's, knew it could be uncomfortable maybe a lot of us you know some people but you don't know everyone and so I'm going to try and give us the safest uh, easiest way to enter into this most of us because we don't have a great experience with lament we don't really even know how to do it we, we struggle with these these using these words because we think I can't say why to God I can't question him I can't tell God my fears and my anger I can't tell him my hurt and why haven't you fixed this? I can't bring that to him. And yet if you look through the Psalms, David does that all the time. So many characters throughout the Bible, they, they pray this way to God. They, they offer it up to him, understanding that he knows it anyway. He sees that you feel that way anyway. Uh, can we bring up that quote? Uh, I love what Keller says here. He says, the Psalms, in a sense, give you the permission to pour out your complaints in a way that we might think inappropriate if it wasn't there in the scriptures. We, we see David doing it, and we're like, okay, so this is okay. It is okay to say, God, I don't understand this. I don't know what you're doing. Why hasn't this changed? Why are you so far away from me? When will you bring healing for this thing? When will you finally save that person? When, why, why, why are you allowing things like 50 people to get shot in a mosque? Why are you allowing Ken Elliott to remain in captivity all this time? Why haven't you fixed this? Why don't you care? Why does it seem like you're so far away? We, we can pray this way to God. We can actually bring him our griefs like this. And he hears us. He, he wants us to come to him. That's what makes it an act of worship. When you bring your questions, when you bring your fears and your hurt and your pain to him in prayer, it makes it a spiritual act of worship. So I'm going to put up the next slide going to give us that anatomy of grief. We talked about these elements of lament. This is what it could look like. And I want you to think for yourself, what is the thing on your heart that you, that question on your mind you don't understand? The thing that you've experienced, maybe it's something yourself, a grief you're carrying from something you've done or that happened to you and you don't understand it. To lift this up to God 
right now in a lamenting prayer of God help. God, I need you. I don't understand this. I don't get it. Maybe it's a lament for someone else, a situation that brings so much pain and grief because of you're watching somebody else do something. It's just tearing you apart. I want you to lift that up right now together in prayer to God. Whatever it is, everything in between, we can lift up these questions. We can lift up our doubts and our anger to him, and he wants to hear these things from us. Now, I'm going to lead us right from this time of prayer right into communion because we just talked about the hope in Christ, that he is the one who came to take on our griefs and our sorrows. So we're going to take a time in prayer. I'm going to have some music playing so that as you speak out these laments, maybe you don't feel so exposed, everyone listening to you, but I really want you to pray these things. Really open up your heart to God, that thing that you've been trying to shove down, put away. Really open it up to him. Bring it to him. He sees it anyway. Cry out your lament to him. And when the song finishes, very quickly I'm going to just kind of speak the words of blessing over the supper and then we're going to take and eat in celebration of what Jesus did because this pronounces his victory over all grief and death and sadness and the hope of one day when he returns. That's what he accomplished on the cross for us. So we're going to come and eat in celebration of his victory over all those things.